be good. Um, and there is actually going to be a meeting this Wednesday that Lisa will be holding for anyone who will be interested in uh, being part of the team for Thread Together. And that's going to be here at 2.30 Wednesday afternoon. So if it's something you're interested in and you might be available Wednesday afternoon, it would be great to see you here at 2.30. All right, let's get into the message. Um, I came across one of the worst uh, instances of hatred that I've ever observed when I came across this this will that was written in 1935 by Mr. Donahoe. It says, Unto my two daughters, Frances Marie and Denise Victoria, by reason of their unfilial attitude towards a doting father, I leave them the sum of one dollar to each and a father's curse. May their lives be fraught with misery, unhappiness, and poignant sorrow. May their deaths be soon and of a lingering, malignant, and torturous nature. The last line of the will is so vicious, I shudder to even share it, but I quote, it reads, May their souls rest in hell and suffer the torments of the condemned for eternity. Can you imagine being a father with that much hatred for your children? Can you imagine being a daughter who elicits that sort of response from a father? See, this is so way outside of each of our normal existence, our normal understanding, our normal things that we observe, that it's quite shocking to us. You see, we have been far more accustomed to the language of love than of hate. We experience so much love from so many people. I think that the love we experience far outweighs the hate. And so it's rare uh, for us to actually experience or even observe or come across hatred such as this. And as Christians... Hatred has only one place, and that is when it is directed towards sin. Hatred never has a place when directed towards a person, and especially not towards a brother or sister in Christ. You know, the last few weeks we've been looking into the love of God, and today we look at the command to love one another as we continue our series from 1 John, Love Illuminated, Today we're in chapter 3, so if you've got your Bibles there with you, either paper or, or um, silicon versions, um, glass, whatever, um, open them up to chapter 3. We're going to be starting from verse 11, uh, but first let me pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would uh, uh, speak into our lives today. Lord, we know that there is hatred in our world, but we also know of the great love that you have. Indeed, you are love. And so, Lord, may you illuminate your love to us today. May you reveal your heart to us today. May we hear and listen to you, we pray. Amen. So, have you got your Bibles? 1 John, chapter 3, going from verse 11. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother, and why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. 
Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So the message that John and his faithful followers had heard from the beginning was Jesus' command to love one another as he had loved them. Christians, you know, we are not identified by the absence of sin, but by righteous behaviour. So how do we identify righteousness? It's not in morality, but it's by brotherly love. You know, the opposite of brotherly love would be murdering your brother. Like, that's pretty much the opposite, right? And, and, and John uses that example. Cain's murder of his brother Abel, evidence controlled by Satan rather than by God. And he was envious because of Abel's righteousness, and this motivated him to kill his brother. You know, often our pride tempts us to dislike those who are more righteous than we are because they make us feel guilty by comparison. So what is the antidote to pride? Well, that's easy. It's humility, seeing others through loving eyes. A grand champion lamb owned by a little girl was being auctioned. And as the bids reached $2 a kilo, the little girl standing beside the lamb in the arena began to cry. At $5 a kilo, the, the tears were streaming down her face and she clasped her arms tightly around this little lamb's neck that she loved so dearly. And the higher the bids rose, the more she cried. And finally, a local businessman bought the lamb for more than $1,000 but then announced that he was donating it to the little girl, and the crowd applauded and cheered. Months later, an English teacher was assessing some essays when they came across one from a little girl who told, who told about the time her grand champion lamb had been auctioned. The prices began to get so high during the bidding, she wrote, that I started to cry from happiness. She continued with... The man who bought the lamb for so much more than I ever dreamed I would get returned the lamb to me. And when we got it home, Daddy barbecued the lamb and it was really delicious. <laughs> <laughs> you see, this, this, this generous businessman who thought that this girl was crying and his heart went out to her in love as she expressed love for this lamb, well, it's a little bit different. She loved it a different way. Um, but it's amazing how when our hearts are moved towards love, then wonderful, joyous moments like that can be created. But it's just as puzzling what moves our hearts towards pride, envy and hatred. And when we come across others' hatred towards us, that can also be puzzling. But John does give us some insight as to why we might experience others' hatred. So if we as Christians feel or demonstrate loving concern for one another, it shouldn't surprise us if unrighteous people hate us for being more righteous than they are. The Christians that John was writing to, they couldn't understand why the world hated them. And he says, don't be surprised. You see, Christians are to the world what Abel was to Cain. 
more righteous than they are. And don't get me wrong here, I'm not saying we're better in any way, because we're all sinners, right? But we shouldn't be surprised that if we model our lives after our Saviour, Jesus Christ, then His life will be reproduced in us and His life is righteous. So we will by nature, because we have God's nature within us, be more righteous than those around us, not because we're better, but because of who we serve and who we follow and who we love and who we want to emulate, right? And so we shouldn't be surprised if the world hates us. You know, sometimes unbelievers can become angry with us. For example, you know, they're reacting more against God in us than against us personally. There have many, been many times where I have been puzzled by the hostilities of others towards me in workplaces that I've been in, where all I've sought to do is the best in my job and be a kind colleague. And when I was researching and studying this passage this week, I had that aha moment for me. I'm like, ah, this explains it. Maybe it was me, but maybe it was this too, right? You know, if all I'm trying to be is do my job well and be nice and kind to those around me, yet I keep on getting people hating on me, what's that all about? Surely I'm not that, you know, like adversarial. And this was that aha moment. Have you ever experienced that? Hatred is the natural response of the sinful world towards righteousness. And on the flip side, love for other Christians shows the presence of the new and eternal life of Christ in us. Your love is one of the assurances that we have that life. In verse 14, John talks about death and life. He talks about two vastly different spheres of existence. And, and the contrast shows the great change that has taken place in our life when we come to a saving faith in Christ and enter that eternal life of Christ in us. See, anyone who doesn't love at all is abiding in death rather than in eternal life. So John makes the case extreme to make his point really clear. He contra his contrasts are death and life, hatred and love, you know, murder and love, and darkness and light. That's basically what this whole book of 1 John really boils down to in many essences, is those, those stark contrasts. And so no Christian whose eternal life has control of them, who's walking in fellowship with God, will commit murder. Because that is so anti to what we are living for. It's only if we are not living for Christ and abiding in Him would that ever occur. So if hatred of a brother in faith is the antithesis of love, what does true Christian love look like? So we've had an example of what the opposite is. We know that the opposite of love is hatred and that leads to murder and there's really stark examples of that. But verse 16, John explains what Christian love looks like. He says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed 
and in truth. So this is really stark contrast to Cain's murderous act. We see love in Jesus Christ laying down his life for us. It's the opposite of taking another one person's life, which Cain did. Jesus Christ laid down his life once, but we ought to lay down our lives repeatedly in self-sacrificing love. See, most people associate Christianity with the command to love, and so they think that they know all about Christianity when they've understood its teaching in terms of their own concept of love. However, John believed it was necessary to explain clearly to his readers what he meant by love. He doesn't mean a feeling. He means self-sacrifice. See, this is very different to our world's understanding and view of love and even their view of Christian love, right? Every movie about love is all about the feeling. Every political stance about love is all about a feeling, which if you don't agree with me, then you hurt my feelings and so you must hate me. I don't know how that... Anyway. But that's not what John says love is. Love, according to John, is all about self-sacrifice. When do you hear that message in our society? That true love is about sacrifice. One commentator wrote, It's easy to lay down one's life. Martyrdom is heroic and exhilarating. Okay. The difficulty, he says, lies in doing the little things, facing day by day the petty sacrifices and self-denials which no one notices and no one applauds. I'm not sure how exciting martyrdom is, really. It's not something I've, uh, it's not a spiritual gift that God's given me. Um, uh, but the little things, it's about self-sacrificing the little things as well as the big things. Author Wayne Hudson writes, When someone says, I don't love you anymore, it shakes you to your very core. It caused me to ponder the true meaning of love as never before. After many years, I arrived at the only definition that makes sense. Since God is love and we must compare our love to him, we come up short if we define it any other way. For you see, in the final analysis, love is a commitment with a beginning and no end. Isn't that something? Love is a commitment with a beginning and no end. Christ chose to love us and he has never stopped. He never will. We should be very careful with a word like love. Are we willing to make that kind of commitment? Are we willing to look at love like John does, like God does? See, love means readiness to do anything for other people. We may not have the opportunity to save a brother's life by dying in his place, Nevertheless, we can and should do the very next best thing, sacrifice our comforts for them. Our love for God is manifested by obedience, but our love for other Christians is manifested by sacrifice. 
Verse 17, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? That's one of the reasons why we're doing Thread Together, to meet real needs, to express the love of God in tangible ways and bring hope. The evidence of genuine love is not verbal professions, but vital performances. Concrete acts rather than empty words. That's love indeed and in truth. Speaking of love indeed and truth, most of our experiences of the sacrifice required in love is in our marriages. So let me just talk to those who are married, are maybe going to be getting married soon, or one day will become a married person, then let me speak to you. If that's not you, if you have no ideals for marriage, and if you're not married and you don't want to be married, you know, then maybe just sit this one out because you, you, know, you won't know what I'm talking about. But if you've got any form of any idea of having a relationship with anybody else, then listen up. An, an author wrote, he, he writes, it's a wise groom who has to be dragged to the altar. He knows what love is. It's death. If lovers don't know this, they are headed for trouble. Never will you have your own way again. You can't be happy if the other person isn't. No matter who wins the argument, you lose. Always. The sooner you learn this, the better off you'll be. Love is an exercise in frustration. You leave the window up when you want it down. You watch someone else's favourite TV show. You kiss when you have a headache. You turn the music down when you like it loud. You learn to be patient without sighing or sulking. Love's doing things for the other person. In marriage, two become one, but the one isn't you. It's the other person. You love this person more than you love yourself. This means that you love this person as she or he is acceptance we ask ourselves frankly what that impulse is that makes us want to redesign a person it isn't love we want the other person to be normal like us but is that loving the other person or ourselves love brings out the best in people they can be themselves without artificiality people who know they are loved glow with beauty and charm let this person talk. Create the assurance that any idea, any suggestion, any feeling can be expressed and will be respected. Allow the other person to star once in a while. A wife's joke doesn't have to be topped. Don't interrupt your husband in the middle of his story. Cultivate kind ways of speaking. It can be as simple as asking them instead of telling them to do things. Don't take yourself too seriously. Married life is full of crazy mirrors to see ourselves, how stubborn, how immature we really are. You may be waiting for your wife to finish because you never lift a finger to help her. Love is funny. Its growth doesn't depend on what someone does for you. It's in direct proportion to what you do for him or her. The country is swarming with people who have never learned this. So are divorce courts. 
See, love is all about sacrifice. It's not a feeling. Whenever I do marriage counselling, I often talk to people and I talk about the fact that love is a choice. It's something we choose to do because we want the best for the other person. We want them to flourish. And if they are going to flourish, then so will we. Now, you might go, well, okay, so is that selfish then? No, because you've got their best interests at heart. Love is a choice and it's all about sacrifice. And John continues to then show us what love does for believers in verse 19. He says, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. See, the practice of such self-sacrificing love for our brothers and sisters in Christ can give us boldness in God's presence now as we pray and in the future when we stand before him at his final judgment seat. You know, these tangible demonstrations of love of our brothers and sisters in Christ, they show our true character, our righteousness. These acts of love should be a comfort to us when we feel guilty that we have not met more needs, which is a condition that we can feel no matter how generous we may be. By demonstrating love, we both gain assurance that we are walking in truth and we quiet our hearts when they accuse us of being guilty of not doing more. So we all feel that guilt and that pressure that we could always do more. But as long as we're doing what we can, demonstrating love at our capacity, then we are doing enough and should feel peace about it. You know, someone once uh, someone said to me last week, they gave me a definition of excellence. And, you know, it's one of the things I think we could strive for excellence. But there's a difference between excellence and perfection. And here's the difference. Excellence is doing the best with what you've got. The best with what you've got. And so we should be striving for excellence in our love, not perfection. Because we can't attain perfection. But we should be doing the best with what we've got. We all feel that guilt and pressure though. We could always do more. But as long as what we're doing what we can, demonstrating love at our capacity, then we're doing enough and we should feel peace about it. See, we can overcome feelings of false guilt by remembering that God, who is greater than our guilty heart, knows our real motives. He does not judge on the basis of appearance, like we may judge and condemn ourselves. He knows our heart. And so true love for our brothers and sisters demonstrated in actions of self-sacrifice enable us to face Jesus Christ unashamedly and with confidence whenever he may appear. A clear conscience 
can give us an appropriate boldness to approach God's throne of grace in prayer now. So it raises a question about answered prayer. How does that work? There's nothing mechanical or magical about prayer. For it to be effective, the will of the person praying needs to be in line with the will of God. And such conformity of wills is brought about only as believers, as we, as our, um, as we live in Christ, as we abide in Christ more and more. As we do that, our prayers are more in line with His will and more effective as they reflect the heart of God more and more because we're abiding in God more and more. We're in fellowship, in stronger fellowship more and more with God. I love hearing children pray, like seven-year-old Debbie's prayer. Dear God, please send a new baby for mummy. The new baby you sent last week cries too much. (laughs) Or six-year-old Jimmy said, Dear God, Who did you make smarter, boys or girls? My sister and I want to know. Angela's was great. Dear God, this is my prayer. Could you please give my brother some brains? So far, he doesn't have any. She was eight. Seven-year-old Hank prayed something that we've all probably said. Dear Lord, thank you for the nice day today. You've even fooled the TV weatherman. Dear God, please bring me a new brother. The one I got hits me all the time. That was from Agnes, who's six. Her brother was two. (laughs) Dear God, please help me in school. I need help in spelling, maths, history, geography and writing. I don't need help in anything else. What else is left? (laughs) She was nine, little Lois. Seven-year-old Natalie's prayer. Dear God, do you have any helpers in heaven? I would like to be one of your helpers in heaven when I have summer holidays. How precious. Dear Lord, tomorrow is my birthday. Could you please put a rainbow in the sky? From sweet little Susan, age nine. David was seven years old when he prayed this. He said, Dear God, I need a raise in my pocket money. Could you have one of your angels tell my father, thank you? (laughs) Good old Johnny, age eight. Dear God, I'm saying my prayers for me and my brother Billy because Billy's six months old and he can't do anything but sleep and poop in his nappy. Hopefully in our prayers we've progressed a little bit from that. But as children, there's that heart there, isn't there? To to want to be present with God and have Him involved in our lives. And, you know, we hopefully, you know, still maintain that same heart towards God, that same openness as we abide though in Him more and more our prayers will become more in line with His will and more effective as they reflect the heart of God more and more. Verse 22 says, And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandment and do what pleases Him. So what are those commandments? What is it that pleases Him? Well, John told us, it's that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. It's pretty simple. It's not rocket science, this Christian life. It's all about believing in Jesus and loving one another. So Jesus taught the apostles to trust in him and to love each other. To believe in the name of Jesus Christ is to accept Jesus Christ for what he really is. And he taught them to trust 
in the effective power of his name when they prayed to his father. This is like added ground of confidence in our prayers. John concludes chapter 3 with the encouragement again about abiding in Christ. As we abide in Christ, our prayers align with his will more and more and our confidence grows more and more. And we have the added benefit and confidence of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. See, God abiding in us as well as our abiding in Him are essential to our having confidence in God and before Christ. See, obedience, it, it results in mutual abiding. God in man, man in God. God abides in every obedient believer with His presence, His fellowship, His power, His blessing. But He indwells, He lives in every believer. See, the evidence that God abides in us is the manifestation of His Spirit in and through us. And that is a great comfort and assurance because the fruit of that is borne out in acts of righteousness. So, from our passage today, we see that a Christian who hates his brother acts utterly out of touch with God and exemplifies the murderous spirit of Cain. And in so doing so, is more abiding in the sphere of death. By contrast, the loving Christian takes Christ's own self-sacrificing love as the model by which we ourselves should love in actual deeds and in accord with the truth. If we do so, we can quiet a guilt-ridden heart achieve a superb confidence before God in prayer and expect God to answer our prayers precisely because we are pleasing God. And as I come to a close with this in mind, abiding in God, loving one another, I wanted to end with a practical note on how we can please God. So yes, primarily, first and foremost, believe in Him. That's, that's number one, that pleases God. Number two is love one another. You might be saying, hey, Aaron, I'm actually doing really well in this. This has been a real encouragement today to listen to this message because you've resonated with my heart. You've really confirmed some strengths that I've got going. And I say, excellent, be encouraged. But what about in other areas? How in other areas might you be able to love God more, love others, give those self-sacrificing deeds to meet needs, but there's nine things that the Bible teaches about ways to please God. Not one of those is by exalting Jesus Christ, His Son. Are you making more of Jesus? Number two is by proclaiming the message of the cross. If you want to please God, then share with others the hope we have in Jesus. By believing in God and His promises is another one. Do you stand on the Word of God and on His promises? Do you walk in faith? Another one is by asking for wisdom. We can sometimes become wise in our own eyes, but true wisdom is from God. Have you, when was the last time you asked God for His wisdom? Also, by staying away from sexual sin. That's a good one. That will help us please God. By sharing the gospel with unbelievers. That's a wonderful way to please God by sharing the hope we have, by giving to others in times of need, about that self-sacrificing thing, 
by submitting to authority. That can sometimes be a hard one. It sort of touches on that rebellious spirit that we all have, doesn't it? We don't really like submission. You know, it's almost like it's a dirty word. Submission? What? Really? No thanks. Maybe that's one thing we can do. And I love this one. The last one I'm going to share with you is by praising God for all things. You know, having that attitude of gratitude, having that moment of praise for even the little things in life. You know, God's blessings are so abundant, we don't even take the moments to to even recognize them sometimes. That's one way we can please God is by praising Him for all things. So again, if you've been listening today and you're thinking, great, Aaron, you know, I'm doing really well with loving my brothers and sisters in Christ. And you were encouraged by today's message. I'm so thrilled for you. But maybe they are one of those nine areas which just touched a nerve and you think, actually, I could probably do better in that area. Um, I hope that that would encourage you even more to sacrifice, to, to love, to bring more of our lives into obedience to Christ. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the love that you demonstrated to us when on the cross you died so that our sins would be forgiven. Lord, you paid that penalty of of our sin. And Lord, you, through nothing but your love for us, made it possible for us to be accepted by you even though we are sinners. And Lord, we thank you that you say to us, come just as we are. Lord, we are all sinners in need of a saviour. That's one of the things we recognise and why we're here at church today is because we know that we can't do it ourselves. And yes, we are amongst many hypocrites. But Lord, we serve a righteous saviour. And whilst your righteousness at times is evidence in our lives, it doesn't make us better than anyone else. It just makes us more obedient to you. And so, Lord, may that be something that we cultivate as we abide in you, we abide in that obedience to your revealed will. May our prayers be effective as we pray according to your will. May you help us sacrifice in love as you've sacrificed for us. And, Lord, may you help us exalt Jesus Christ. May you help us proclaim the message of the cross. May you help us by believing in God and your promises. May you help us ask for your wisdom. May you help us stay away from sexual sin. May you help us share the gospel with unbelievers. May you help us give to others in time of need. May you help us submit to authority. And Lord, may you help us praise you in all things. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.